Welcome back to our series of satellite symposium from the ONS meeting. For our next symposium, we focused on breast cancer with nurses Ms. Maureen Major Campos and Ms. Susan McKinney and investigators Drs. Hope Rugo and Sandra Swain. We begin with a young woman with advanced disease presented by Ms. Major Campos. So a patient in my clinic, 56-year-old, she has ER-positive breast cancer, HER2 negative. She's symptomatic with ascites, shortness of breath, and overall fatigue. So she came into our clinic looking for options. Could you talk a little bit about her life situation and that initial meeting with her when you talked about having metastatic breast cancer? Right. So this is a really important concept is that this is a woman who prior, we treated her with her adjuvant therapy eight or nine years ago with AC followed by paclitaxel. And she's a woman who was very active, was involved with her church. She worked full time and she actually developed her recurrence in the bone and liver about three years ago. And at that time, we were able to manage her disease because of her ER positive disease with hormonal therapy. And, you know, occasionally she would have changes in her scans or she'd have a complaint and we'd have to alter her hormonal therapy. But at this point, when she presents in our clinic today, she's reporting changes in her activities of daily living. She's going to work but struggles. She's not really going out on weekends because she's not feeling well enough to visit with family and friends. She's not going to her church. And she's kind of just down and out and wondering what's wrong with her. Right? She's not really saying to me, my disease is worse. She comes in saying, I just don't feel very well. What's her life situation, spouse, family? She's married. She has two older children now. They're 20 and 22. And she's actually a very active 56-year-old. Now, when she was first diagnosed with metastatic disease, what a crushing blow, particularly after having gone through adjuvant chemotherapy and then still having metastatic disease. Did you actually get into the issue of the curability or lack of curability? And what kinds of questions was she asking or she didn't want to hear about it? So the patient was very, very upset, obviously, as they all are. You know, it's almost a two-phase when they're diagnosed with their early-stage disease. They really look at their life in terms of what their adjuvant recommendations are going to be. And many of them then dust it off and move on to other things, which is what this woman had done. And then when she had a recurrence in her liver and in her bone, ultimately, she was very, very anxious and really thought, okay, I'm going to you know, spend all my money. I'm going to rack up my trips. I'm going to take my kids and do everything I want to do. And it's really up to the clinical team to talk about the chronicity of breast cancer. And so certainly the physician colleague talked about treatment options. But as an oncology nurse, I really spent a lot of time with her, having her understand that there are many, many treatments available. We're always looking for new regimens. Clinical trials are very important for her and for all patients with breast cancer to find other available options for them. But she really came to understand that breast cancer was a chronic disease. It was something she was going to live with. She was going to see us more frequently, which I don't know if that was a good or a bad thing. But, you know, we became more of a partner with her and her family in her disease. You know, Hope, we hear about this concept of metastatic breast cancer as a chronic disease. But if this woman had said, what's the chance that I'm going to be alive and feeling okay in five years, how would you have answered that? Or even three years? Well, you know, it's actually interesting because I was just looking at this when I was reviewing a paper yesterday that, you know, this paper started out with the idea that metastatic breast cancer is incurable, and even though we've made great advances, the median survival is about two years and had a bunch of recent papers. And I went through all those recent papers because I thought, no, it's not still two years. And really, if you look at the group of patients as a whole who have metastatic breast cancer, median survival with the data that we have, which still dates back, you know, to the early part of this last decade, is about two years, 18 months, 26 months in that range. So I think we have to be cautious. And a lot of times what I'll say to patients is, and I hedge, you know, unless it's a patient who's relapsed on adjuvant therapy with triple negative breast cancer and has a rapidly expanding liver, you know, this is a different situation, and little kids. But this kind of a patient, I say, let's see how you respond to your first treatment, because that's going to tell us how things are going to go. We can much more accurately predict what your likelihood is of living five years after we see how long you respond to change in hormone therapy. And that's worked out pretty well. Sandy, what's it like? I've heard oncologists talk about themselves feeling crushed when a patient comes in after having gone through adjuvant therapy and metastatic disease. 
How do you deal with it yourself personally, and how do you reassure the patient? I mean, those kinds of data, to me, don't sound like chronic disease. That sounds like a real serious disease, which, of course, we know it is. It's likely to take this woman's life. How do you deal with it, and how do you help patients deal with it, Sandy? Well, I think I deal with it very similar to what Maureen said. And it isn't, you know, it's not a chronic disease in that they'll die of something else. It's more of a disease that they're going to have to live with. So I understand what both Hope and Maureen are saying about this. And I think that to live your life, you have to have some hope. And if you tell someone just point blank, okay, you're going to die of this disease and that's it, then there's really no hope for them to go on. So I totally agree with what Maureen said, and that's the way I usually approach it with patients. And also what Hope said, you know, it'll really tell us how you do with the therapy, and there are lots of therapies out there now compared to maybe even 10 years ago. We have lots of things we can try. Patients respond differently to different treatments. And so we do develop a partnership with it. It's pretty devastating, though, being the caretaker, as you all all know taking care of these patients no matter how hard we try and how hard you you know want to put up a wall it's really hard when they relapse it really is so I don't know if I'm the best person to ask how well I deal with it I just had a patient last week that I'd taken care of for a long time who died she underwent tack chemotherapy and it was really tough and you know you live through it with the patients and so it's really hard when they do recur but fortunately for her in, in that case since I knew her so well, we had a good relationship, she was able to get into hospice, which I think is extremely important. And as a team, we need to be better at helping our patients with that. And the nurses were great, and the hospice nurses were really great, and she died a very good, peaceful death. So I think that's one of the ways I deal with it, too, is to really try to make sure I know what they want you know, from the beginning and then work with the patient through that. And Maureen, I want you to comment on sort of what this patient's goals were. But Susan, I think you had something you wanted to comment on. Yeah, I find it interesting that when I've been following patients for many years as well in clinic and they're diagnosed with a metastatic change in path, I find it very hard and challenging that probably, at least in my practice, I get about 30% of women who want to deal with complementary therapies and either want to bail out of systemic therapy altogether and to try to do something completely different or struggle with how to navigate and negotiate with their oncologist what they want to do versus how compatible that is with traditional therapy because some oncologists feel very strongly one way or the other some are very supportive of that and will find regimens and and help them counsel through some of the things that they want to try to see where the toxicities can be synergistic versus some that will say I don't believe in it and you can't do it and then they sort of leave the practice so I just I wanted to throw that out because it is a challenge because there's a lot out there for complementary therapy. Let's drop back into the science of what's going on here. Now, this lady now has had a couple different hormone therapies for metastatic disease. Now she's not feeling well. And what were you thinking and what actually happened to the patient and where is she right now? So this is the patient who came in experiencing complaints, and this is one of the first times where she's quantified alterations in her quality of life, and her scans documented disease progression. So it's really a fine balance between maintaining quality of life and disease control, and I always look at it as the scale, and how do we keep both sides balanced, limiting toxicity, and also improving quality of life. But at this point, the disease is tipping the scale, so her quality of life is really down and the disease is up here. And we have to look at some way to kind of balance that out. And so at this point, we did have to recommend chemotherapy for her. And we recommended paclitaxel with a VEGF inhibitor, bevazuzumab. And the patient agreed to go on that. And she receives the paclitaxel weekly every three out of four weeks, and the bevazuzumab is 10 milligrams per kilogram once every two weeks. And she's been stable on that for about 10 months now, so she's really been managing with this therapy very, very well. I mean, certainly she comes in, she sees us more, so there's that side effect of drug alteration and quality of life, but she feels better. She's out. She's back to work full-time. She has energy on weekends. It's not quite where it was three years ago, but she's able to enjoy and be back engaged with her life. So in many ways, despite using more toxic therapy and chemotherapy with bevazuzumab, we've balanced that scale a little bit. Now, what did you say to her when she began the therapy? Paclitaxel, bevazuzumab, actually, we know from polling oncologists, is by far the most common choice 
that we'd be made in this situation. What do you say to her in terms of what to look out for, what to expect, both from the paclitaxel and the bevacizumab? We're probably more familiar with the paclitaxel toxicities, all of us in the room, and that we know there's a risk of hypersensitivity reactions. We know that neuropathy is a potential side effect with these taxane drugs. So it's important to do a neuroassessment on a patient prior to starting therapy. And, you know, I don't go in and do a deep tendon reflex evaluation. I ask the patient to button a shirt or to, you know, do something with fine motor skills so that I can assess their abilities. I also ask them to take, I walk with them around the unit just to see what their gait is like. In terms of bevazuzumab, we know that there's a risk of hypertension. We also know that there's a risk of increased proteinuria in the urine. So we're monitoring those patients for that. We take the blood pressures every time they come into clinic, and when there's an elevation, we certainly alert the physician colleagues that we need to possibly provide some intervention in terms of hypertension management. Now, did this patient have hypertension, proteinuria? Another thing that's seen a lot with bevazuzumab is nosebleeds. Did she have any of that? Well, she did not prior to starting. She did not have hypertension as part of one of her comorbidities. She does now report, and it's somewhat disturbing in that she does have some nosebleeds, and it can be random. You know, she's at work, and all of a sudden she'll notice that she's got, you know, something dripping, which makes her a little bit uncomfortable. But a lot of times we talk about supporting the mucosa of the nose. We talk a lot about using, you know, Vaseline to kind of coat the nose at night potentially just to maintain the integrity of the skin or the tissue. So she's doing relatively well. She has not experienced hypertension, and so she is not on any type of antihypertensive medication. So we've put up here some of the major studies that have been looked at in terms of adding bevacizumab to chemotherapy without going through all the details. And again, maybe more putting it in the context of the patient saying, well, how much is it going to add to the chemo just by putting bevacizumab in there? What would you say in terms of sort of the relative risk benefit of bringing in bevacizumab on top of this hope? Well, I think that, you know, it's actually an interesting question because we know that in all of the trials that have been presented to date or published, that adding bevacizumab to chemotherapy improved response and progression-free survival. But the degree of benefit was very variable across the trials, and I think there are some key differences. In addition, none of the trials have shown a difference in overall survival, which is a favorite endpoint, of course, of the FDA. Now, in terms of practicing oncologists, nurses, and you know, all of the people who care for our patients, and in terms of the patient's perspective, you know, we heard already a great case about how this patient's quality of life was worse on hormone therapy because her cancer had sort of taken over in terms of causing her symptoms. And then when she went on chemotherapy, her symptoms improved because she had a good response. So, in fact, you actually, in a patient who's responding, can improve outcome for that patient enough that it's worthwhile, at least in my perspective, to use bevacizumab. So what we saw in ECOG 2100 when patients received weekly paclitaxel, very much in the schedule that your patient is, is that overall response rate was improved and progression-free survival was really markedly improved, doubled. And in the Avado trial, where patients got docetaxel every three weeks, the docetaxel dose was very high, so that patients stopped after a certain number of cycles. So the difference in progression, which all occurred after they finished the chemotherapy, wasn't as great. And then in Ribbon 1, we were able to see that if you started a patient on capecitabine, an oral agent, and added bevacizumab, that you saw an improvement in progression-free survival in a similar degree to what paclitaxel was, but that the patients progressed a little more quickly. And that's common when you just look at the difference in capecitabine and paclitaxel. So I think that we see a benefit. You can add bevacizumab to a number of different regimens, but we have to be cautious when we're looking at toxicity. So one of the things many of us have done without a lot of data is that in patients who have a great response but are being sort of plagued with some of these toxicities longer on as we stop the chemotherapy and leave a patient on bevacizumab for a while or maybe even add back a hormone treatment so that they get a chemo holiday. So I guess for a while there was a lot of questions, Sandy, about whether or not bevacizumab really added to capecitabine. Capecitabine has a lot of advantages. It doesn't cause hair loss, et cetera. And now we have data from the Ribbon 2 trial, as Hope said, saying that it is helpful. How do you go about selecting which chemo to use in metastatic breast cancer, particularly if you're going to use bevacizumab, Sandy? Well, I think most physicians would choose, as was done in this case, the paclitaxel bevacizumab, and it's been at least a year. But since then, the Ribbon 2 data did come out 
showing that the capecitabine and bevacizumab was beneficial in second-line treatment. So I think in this situation, when she eventually were to progress, that I would choose the capecitabine. And I might even doing it again, you know, at this point. I like capecitabine a lot. I use it a whole lot before even using any of the bevacizumab. The advantages of it are that you don't have the hair loss. It is an oral therapy. Most patients don't have the hand-foot syndrome if you really control it right, if you watch out very carefully for the redness and really stop it before it gets to that point. So I really like capecitabine period, with or without the bevacizumab. So I'd put it higher up in what I would choose for these kind of patients. So Maureen, can you just follow up in terms of the patient? What happened to her tumor-related symptoms on the treatment? You were mentioning she felt bad. So she actually is doing very, very well, and we're continuing her on paclitaxel with bevazuzumab for now, and she really is doing well. She's back to work. She's engaged in her life, and, you know, she was very hesitant initially to start chemotherapy, although she did feel so poorly that she understood the reasons to do that, and now, you know, she's willing to work with us. You know, it's just important that she's had 10 months of treatment, and so as Hope had talked about earlier, it's important to look at what the patient's goals are. And so at 10 months, if a patient wanted to go away for a portion of time and perhaps miss a treatment, I think that would be something we would be willing to work with her on because of her stability of her disease at this point. Because remember, the goal of, you know, metastatic treatment is quality of life. And so we want the patients to engage in their life. I want them to go on vacation. And and oftentimes that's the dialogue as an oncology nurse that I have that sometimes they don't have with the physicians because they feel that, you know, the doctor can't really doesn't have time for that, so the infusion or treatment nurses and the practice nurses often can get into those conversations. So we wanted to have you present another case of metastatic breast that we can kind of use as a contrast, and you picked a woman, interestingly, who had a couple major comorbidity issues. You know, obviously, if patients have other diseases, we have to take that into consideration, particularly in terms of selection of therapy. So why don't we go through this case? How did she present So this is a patient, a 63-year-old, who came to our clinic with advanced metastatic disease. It was ER positive, HER2 negative, and her comorbidities were that she did have a diabetic condition, which was managed with oral hypoglycemics. As well, she had a major history of depression and worked very closely with psychologists and psychiatrists to manage her depression very closely. So when she presented to us, she had already exhausted most of her hormonal therapy options, and she also was not well. She had some side effects and toxicities from her disease, which really warranted us to look a little closer at more aggressive therapy. So she, again, is most common subset of breast cancer in general, ER positive, HER2 negative, about two-thirds, three-quarters of patients have ER positive tumors, about 20% are HER2 positive, so you sort of add that up. These two patients with metastatic disease represent the most common subtype. Like the other patient, you know, normally people give hormonal therapy until that stops working, so she gets in kind of a similar situation to the other patient, except she's got depression and diabetes on top of that. Hope, how would you be thinking about treatment for a patient in this kind of situation, considering her depression and also the diabetes? Well, you know, the depression is a hard thing. I think we have a fair number of patients who have at least some degree of depression. Major depression patients tend to be on medications, and you know, mainly we want to try and support them through their treatment. I think it's hard in terms of the chemotherapy to arrange it because we use a number of different medications as supportive care that may affect people's depression. So I think we have to be thinking about that as we think about chemotherapy, as we give them hormone therapy, and provide the appropriate support. When we're looking at a patient like this who has a long time, I mean, she had nine years until she recurred, she took a long duration of hormone therapy, she got a year of control on aromatase inhibitor, but now she's presenting with really a lot of cancer. So I think most of us are uncomfortable going on to another hormone therapy at this setting if patients are very symptomatic and have bulky visceral disease. So we would use chemotherapy, and when you're thinking about chemotherapy in a patient like this, you know, generally we're going to use a taxane first line or capecitabine. In this case, if you're going to go with a taxane, you want to be cautious about using steroids because of the hyperglycemia. And 
the biggest issue with hyperglycemia, you know, we've been having this recently with a number of patients who had kind of borderline diabetes in the past, and then, you know, they start having weird symptoms, you know, and we're not checking their glucose all the time, and then they have a glucose of 550 or something, you know, out of the blue. So you really have to be thinking about it when you're giving a paclitaxel, even to a non-diabetic, that you're just giving steroids, you know, weekly, three out of every four weeks for a long period of time. So in this kind of a patient, I will generally use NAB paclitaxel rather than paclitaxel, as was used in this case, because of the ability to avoid steroids. And, you know, the steroids may actually affect her emotions as well, although I think that's a much more variable endpoint. And then capecitabine, of course, is a great option for these patients as well. What about her mental state at that point? Was she kind of stabilized from the depression? Was she on medication? She was on medication, and she was very stable, although she does report severe mood swings. And so when we talked about what that mood swing was like, I mean, she felt that during that time, she felt very out of control. And it was important for her to be maintained on her medications and to have that level of control within her own emotions, how she dealt with her family. When she had these mood swings, she was very labile. She had difficulties with her relationships, and she felt that it was very important for her to maintain as much of a baseline as she could, which is why we also chose NAPAC-Lataxel and tried to eliminate the steroids pre-medication for her. I was very interested in how you all were going to respond to this question about what fraction of women with metastatic breast cancer have a diagnosis of depression. We actually couldn't find very much in the medical literature, Susan, to document exactly what it is. And it looks like the audience feels it's pretty high. Certainly, I guess there's a difference between being sad and actually being clinically depressed. Any thoughts in terms of, you know, your experiences in terms of depression and metastatic disease? You know, I think that from a clinical standpoint, we don't do a very good job upfront screening for depression. We may ask about mood. We might ask about how they're feeling when they're coming in as a general assessment. But there really isn't sort of an ongoing quick way that you can really do a quantitative assessment where you can sort of striate somebody between being sort of low mood versus someone who needs an intervention and refer them in for depression and management. At least in my practice, a lot of the clinicians are a little bit reluctant to treat for depression up front if they see it. And so, you know, it really takes sort of a severe presentation before it, you tend to react onto it. And if you're following someone over time and it's sort of low and subtle, You know, it's easy to sort of attribute that to sort of their post-anxiety from their treatment or from their diagnosis, and, you know, you're sort of helping them wade it through, and you refer them to the social worker or to a support group. But I think depression in general is really an under-assessed symptom. I just wanted to highlight, you know, in nursing, we've always thought about referrals and that, you know, we have to actually click a box on the electronic medical record to refer to social work. And oftentimes that's a barrier to actually making that referral because you have to sit down, you have to do it, and oftentimes it doesn't happen. So in our organization, what we've started to do is mandate that every patient is evaluated by social work at time of diagnosis because it is often a missed symptom or something that certainly this is an acute event. It's something that happens to these women and they get anxious and it kind of tips them over to that. Maybe they always had a baseline but had some coping strategies that were able to maintain that. So we mandate that all of our patients are evaluated by social work on a periodic basis, even if it's just touching base with them. And certainly the support group effort is really very important. And in our organization, we have a co-facilitated support group with a clinician and a social worker. Social work facilitates group response, and clinicians can often just really separate fact from fiction, which often happens in support groups. So I think both of those tools are really important as we move forward with looking at our patients. Susan? Yeah, one of the things we just recently started and we're piloting right now is that we've opened up a comprehensive cancer support program as part of our overall program. With that, we've been very fortunate and are piloting an emotional distress scale, which is on a, like a tablet, almost like an iPad. And it's very easy to read. It's a, maybe a 25-point distress scale. It covers all aspects of quality of life. And you can grade it. The patient grades it. And then if they're looking for written information or they're looking for someone to see, it actually kicks out 
and the referral is sent in to the department. And before the patient leaves, they can actually get the written information or the consult provided for them. I want to go back to what happened to this woman medically, but before we do, Sandy, one other really interesting aspect of this case is this woman was originally diagnosed in 1999 and was cancer-free until 2008 when she had a recurrence. So, you know, we asked the group here, you know, sort of how uncommon is that in terms of, you know, what we said was, do you agree with the statement that a patient who has an ER-positive tumor is just as likely to develop cancer relapse in the second five years like this woman did is the first five years. Looks like the audience is pretty split. This has really been kind of a new thing, I think, Sandy, that we've really got some numbers for. How would you answer this question? Well, I would strongly agree, and in fact, it could even be later, because it's such an indolent course that you do see relapses that are pretty constant on a yearly basis for many years, unlike with those patients who have ER-negative disease where you see a sooner relapse within usually the first three to five years. So those are much more proliferative tumors, they're growing faster, and so you see an earlier recurrence, whereas as I said before, the ER positive are very indolent. So you can see recurrences 20 years later. And I guess the other thing, Sandy, is we've seen you can really make an intervention in those second five years if you use endocrine therapy, particularly an aromatase inhibitor in postmenopausal women. You actually drop that relapse rate in the second five years. Right, and you're talking about in the adjuvant setting. In yeah. MA17, they looked at women who had received five years of adjuvant tamoxifen and then randomized them to get an aromatase inhibitor or not for five years after that. So getting a total of 10 years of adjuvant hormonal therapy. And there was a very strong benefit, a significant benefit in those women who got the extra five years of the adjuvant AI. And it was especially, it's interesting, recent data that just came out at San Antonio, those women that went into this whole thing premenopausal were on tamoxifen for five years and then were randomized to get an AI because at that point they were actually postmenopausal and were eligible for this, those patients actually did even better. It was like a 10% versus 3% benefit. So that's very interesting information. And I would say we've been surveying, because this just came out in December, a lot of oncologists do not know about those data. The number that came out that really struck me the most was that in women, and these are women who come in, they're diagnosed when they're premenopausal. Now, she was premenopausal or postmenopausal when she was diagnosed? She was postmenopausal. Okay. But he looked at women who were premenopausal. A lot of times they stop having their menstrual periods and become postmenopausal with chemo, or they just naturally go through menopause the first five years. And when he looked at women who were initially node negative, that people think, oh, well, the risk is not that high. In the years five through nine, the risk of relapse is 11.5%. I mean, that is not low. And the women who got the AI, that went down to zero. So, and again, we've surveyed oncologists. This data just came out. It's really a, kind of a different approach to this and really important for people to know about. Let's get back to this woman. Now, how did she do on the NABPAC, Letaxel, and the Bevacizumab in terms of the side effects and specifically in terms of the depression and the diabetes? So one of the important things that we did at the onset before we even initiated any type of chemotherapy was to embrace her psychiatrist in the discussion. So we talked to the psychiatrist, brought him up to speed as to what chemotherapy agents we were looking at so that he could more closely manage her depression and evaluate her for this life-stressing event. She actually did very well. She continues on napaclitaxel currently, and her depression has been well-maintained. It doesn't mean that there are no side effects related to her treatment. She certainly experienced hair loss, and peripheral neuropathy has been a little bit of an issue with her. She complains of some sensory loss, both in her hands and her feet. And so it has required us to lower her dose a bit and give her some occasional weeks off to have some sensory recovery of those nerve fibers. So Hope, it sounds like this woman, and when she was diagnosed or when she was started on chemo bevacizumab, would have been eligible for your study, one of the major studies going on in the United States in metastatic disease, which we'll show in a second. Everybody gets bevacizumab and then randomized between nab-paclitaxel, with this woman got conventional paclitaxel and ixabibolone. But I'm curious what your thoughts are about this. This was, I guess, the first paper that caught a lot of people's attention which compared several doses of nabpaclitaxel to docetaxel, looking like that the efficacy maybe was better with the nabpaclitaxel. 
Do you buy into that? And if it is better, what do you think is going on? There's this spark protein. Maybe you want to comment on that. What do you think about this study? Well, you know, it's important to keep in mind to look at the numbers there. This was a small randomized phase two trial. There are about 75 patients in each arm. And really, you can't make final conclusions about superiority. You can certainly look at toxicity. You can get an idea about toxicity. You can get an idea about equivalency, I think. It's hard to know about superiority. In this particular trial, what was really interesting was that what we considered the standard for weekly NAB-PAKLI-TAC 100 milligrams per meter squared, patients did quite well, and they had the least toxicity of any arm. So that was very encouraging to see. There was a suggestion that the higher dose nabpaclitaxel might result in an improved response in PFS, but you know, it's difficult because it's a lot more toxic, and so you have to dose reduce in some cases in patients who are heavily pretreated. That's the dose that we are using in the randomized phase three trial that you mentioned earlier, but we allow liberal dose reduction, so that works well. I'd say in practice, I start at 100 milligrams per meter squared, or in a patient who has a lot of pre-existing morbidity, neuropathy, et cetera, I might start at 80 milligrams per meter squared, so even a lower dose and then go up. In terms of markers, you know, there's been a lot of interest in whether or not there might be markers that would predict an improved response to nabpaclitaxel, which is in an albumin shell, really, as opposed to non-processed microtubule antagonists like docetaxel and paclitaxel. And the idea being that maybe that albumin, active transport of albumin, would drive the drug, the paclitaxel that's inside that protein, into the cancer cell, and you'd have higher concentrations and therefore more tumor cell kill. So one of the markers, SPARC, which is a protein that's on the cancer cell and increased in more aggressive cancers, and as they metastasize, may in some way be responsible for processing albumin and therefore the drug. So that's being investigated, and there's actually some very interesting interesting work being done on signatures, you know, spark signatures, et cetera, but we don't know the answer yet. And we're going to look at spark in our trial. There's a number of other studies looking at it, and certainly it's not ready for the clinic or prime time. You know, it's interesting in terms of the issue of steroids, Maureen. We surveyed oncologists and said about what percent of patients were getting steroids with a taxane, which is often given, other than with nabpaclitaxel, what fraction of patients have problems from the steroids And sometimes I wonder whether patients tell the docs as much as they tell the nurse. Do you agree with these numbers? They think that about a third of people would have insomnia with the steroids, weight gain about 20%, agitation 16%, exacerbation of diabetes. You can see what the answer is. Do you agree with that or do you think those are low? You know, it's interesting. I don't think that they don't report them. I think that patients start to feel better. So they just decide to keep their side effects quiet so that the doctors won't change the therapy. But I would probably say that, you know, in in a clinic, nursing has the opportunity to ask probing questions and really kind of maybe not directly say, how are you sleeping? But, you know, how do you feel? Are you able to engage in your life? I would feel like these numbers are somewhat accurate. I would probably say that diabetes is probably a little bit lower than I would say overall. What about clinically, the choice of taxane, HOPE? You know, we have three taxanes that are available, nabpaclitaxel, paclitaxel, docetaxel. If you actually ask oncologists which one do you think is less toxicity, they'll say nab, steroids and other reasons. If you ask them what's the efficacy, they'll say, well, they think, you know, based on some of the things you were saying, that maybe it's more effective, and yet it's not used as much as you might think based on that. What do you think is going into that, HOPE? Well, I think that there's a few different reasons for that. One is that paclitaxel is generic, and so it's much less expensive than nab paclitaxel on the purchase cost for practitioners who are in private practice, which is something that Sandy and I have not dealt with. But that's a big deal. You know, you put the money out, you have to get it reimbursed. It's out of your pocket until you get it reimbursed again. And then the second issue is, how is the drug approved? And, you know, what's interesting is as an academic institution, we might get, you know, nab paclitaxel approved first line, no problem. But in a community practice, there's a lot of concern and problems with getting reimbursement for using a drug, even if it's less toxic, in an area where it's not the word of approval and the FDA approval for that drug. So it does limit the use of the agent, and I think we'll see more and more use, of course, as it becomes generic. But And I think the docetaxel question is really interesting. A lot of docetaxel use, but the problem is that 
100 milligrams per meter squared, in my opinion, is too toxic for patients with metastatic disease. So when we use it, you know, we tend to use 75 per meter squared. But even then, you run into a problem where if you're continuing the drug over time, you end up with fluid retention, loss of fingernails, and then this weird side effect, epiphora, which is you know, not life-threatening, but so bad for patients where they have fibrosis of their tear duct and they're tearing all the time, their eyes hurt, they've got to get these stents stuck in there. And if you wait, they've got to get metal stents put in under anesthesia. So that's a reason why I wouldn't choose to use paclitaxel in that setting. And then in a situation where we could get reimbursement, now paclitaxel I think is a great option for patients, but we do run into this problem. Okay, so the last two cases are Susan's and involve HER2-positive disease. Let's begin with your 62-year-old woman. Her history is interesting in that she had had bilateral breast reduction years earlier where they incidentally found a lobular carcinoma in situ, and she had taken tamoxifen as a chemo prevention. Took it for a very short time, though, and stopped it because of severe hot flashes. She had had a prior DVT from a motor vehicle accident, but somehow her local doctors didn't seem to think that that was a contraindication for her. Actually, that's, maybe we should just pause there for one second. I think that's a really good point that this lady somehow got on tamoxifen, even though she had a prior history of DVT. Hope any comments in terms of sort of things to kind of look out for on patients on endocrine therapy like tamoxifen like this? I mean, somebody picked it up, which is fortunate. I think it's obviously very important to get a good history of risk factors for tamoxifen, and one would be having a hypercoagulable state. And, you know, if you have a trauma-related deep venous thrombosis, it is likely that it doesn't actually represent a hypercoagulable state, but it still could, because we know that people who have a mild increased risk could have a clot with moderate trauma when, for example, the rest of the world wouldn't. So for that kind of patient, I would screen before I would put a patient on tamoxifen, and I would make them aware of risks. So I generally probably wouldn't give TAM to a patient with DCIS unless there was a really good reason who had a history of a thrombosis. So this patient had started tamoxifen for being at high risk and had it stopped and then she actually presents with breast cancer. Can you talk about the characteristics of the breast cancer once it was sort of sorted out with surgery? Sure, sure. When she presented, we were able to look at her pathology and she had an infiltrating ductal carcinoma that was an overall grade one. Her mammographic abnormality was also very small, so it correlated easily with her final pathologic, which was under a centimeter. She was ERPR positive, and she was HER2 2+, and then was FISH positive. It sort of broke the tie on that. So, and if you could maybe explain, Sandy, in terms of the HER2 testing here, the fact that she was IHC 2+, which is not really considered positive, but yet the FISH was done and she was positive. What's an IHC, what's a FISH, and what does this mean? So the IHC is immunohistochemistry, and it actually looks at the protein. And we would all consider a 3-plus to be positive. A 2-plus is in between. And about 16% or so of those that are 2-plus actually have the gene amplification, which is what you look at with the FISH test. And so FISH is a ratio, and she, I think you said it was positive. And there is some controversy in that area now. The ASCO came out with some guidelines. Antonia Wolf was the first author, if anyone wants to look it up. But over two would really be considered positive by FISH. So this woman fell into the 20% roughly of women who had HER2-positive disease. She also Mm -hmm. had Mm ER-positive disease. Mm -hmm. And what about her nodal status and the tumor size? Well, she was clinically node negative, and when we saw her, obviously we recommended she was a good candidate for a segmental mastectomy sentinel node, which she did have, and her final path did confirm a 7-millimeter tumor. She was sentinel node negative. Based on her review at our conference, we also, because we're an academic center and have a very active clinical trial center, we're constantly looking for candidates. So prior to her seeing a medical oncologist, we were able to discuss as a multidisciplinary group her options. And one of them was to talk about the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute trial that they have, which is Taxol Herceptin weekly for 12 weeks, followed by three-week Taxol Herceptin for a year. She did agree to that protocol, but was deemed ineligible because of liver function abnormalities that were not found to be metastatic in nature. So we want to explore a couple aspects of this case. For all these cases, we're going to talk about some of the clinical research evidence and how it relates to the patient, and also some of the patient education issues One thing, Maureen, is a real question here, and I'm sure a lot of patients are asking about this, particularly now, as Sandy said, there are a couple of papers out, and we're going to mention them in a second, about the issue of accuracy of ER and HER2 testing. 
What do you say to patients right now, or even maybe even more importantly, if they're ER negative, you know, what's the chance that that's a lab error? It's really ER positive. How do you respond when patients ask you about that? Oftentimes, you know, because there are very two different testings, and we've had a long history with ER or estrogen receptor, we do have a lot of confidence in those results, and they're a qualitative number from zero to 100. But certainly when we move into the range of HER2, because we're always looking for the option to give a patient Herceptin if it's clinically appropriate, we do talk about the two different types of testing and what they measure, and we look back to the data and the, as Dr. Swain referred to, Antonio Wolf's joint venture between ASCO and the American Society of Pathology to look at the evidence based on what is accurate for HER2. I think there is a lot of reason for concern, unfortunately. I mean, I'm less sanguine about it than you are about ER. I think that the problem has been we've had the test for years and nobody's really paid as much attention to it until recently, and I think this guideline is really the first step. There's so many areas, if you look at this, that an ER test can go wrong. I mean, and it's really problematic. So I think if you you ask the question, if you had a tumor that was ER negative, what would you say? And I think it's not unreasonable to retest if there's any question at all. I think the issue is, is it done on the core biopsy or is it done on the lumpectomy specimen is an important one. It's probably more accurate if it's done on the core biopsy. And so I think it is still a tough area. And, you know, when you think about the fact that these two targeted therapies, and we've been talking about biologic and targeted therapies now for the last three conferences, you know, lung cancer now, you know, we don't talk about chemo anymore. We talk about bevacizumab, berlotinib, cetuximab, this morning myeloma, bortezomib, lenalidomide, and breast cancer really was the first tumor where we used this, estrogen receptor and endocrine therapy, and now trastuzumab for HER2-positive disease. Certainly, women who have larger or node-positive tumors that are HER2-positive, they're going to receive trastuzumab and chemotherapy because of the benefits that we've known about now for about five years. But we picked this case because this really is probably the most controversial area in HER2-positive disease, which is a patient like this who has a node-negative tumor, and it's small, under a sonometer. Normally, we don't give chemotherapy to patients like that. They supposedly have a good prognosis. Now, when we polled medical oncologists and presented a case just like this, it was actually 0.6 centimeters, so pretty much the same. We said, okay, the patient's 45, the patient's 75. If they were 45, even though they had this small node-negative tumor, most of the oncologists would give the patient chemotherapy and trastuzumab. That dropped down a lot when it went to the patient being 75. So, Hope, what do we know about this specific situation? There are several papers that came out, again, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, one series from MD Anderson. There was another series from Italy. There was a paper presented at the Breast Cancer Symposium recently looking at this. What do we say to a patient who has a tumor like this in terms of what's the chance they're going to have a cancer recurrence? Well, it's a challenging conversation. And in some ways, as oncologists, we can rationalize using chemotherapy much more easily when we don't have hormone therapy as a backup and trastuzumab as well. I think that the papers recently are quite interesting. And again, some of these made Wall Street Journal, even in New York Times, that discussed the risk in untreated patients who had HER2-positive disease of recurrence and death from cancer. And it appears that, you know, as we've known for larger tumors, that HER2 is a risk factor. But it's not across the board, which is what complicates it. So patients who have HER2-positivity have a higher risk. They may even have a risk as high as a patient who has a much larger node-positive tumor, but it's not everybody. What was this woman's reaction to being diagnosed with breast cancer? What was her attitude? One of the things about these cases where it's kind of borderline about whether or not you're going to use chemotherapy for adjuvant therapy is, you know, are they the kind of patient who's willing to go through chemotherapy even for marginal benefit or more a patient who's concerned about the toxicity? How did she come across him? Was she out there on the web trying to get information, or was she kind of like relying on you all? she wasn't really on the web at all. She sort of came in, although she didn't have any family history with breast cancer, she had a brother that had colon cancer. And so she was sort of up to speed a little bit in terms of toxicities, but also, you know, having a family member with a cancer, she wanted to sort of hear all her options. She doesn't have a job. She was out because of her car accident, because of her back. She does live alone. 
although she was accompanied by her daughter, but was very concerned about how that would, you know, how the chemotherapy would impact her quality of life. So if you assume the patient's already getting chemo and if their tumor's ER positive, hormone therapy, how much more benefit, you know, relatively speaking, do you get from adding trastuzumab? Of course, this is what all the trials that were first presented in 2005 showed. How would you have answered this question, Sandy? Well, most of the trials show a 40 to 50% reduction in recurrence. What about, Hope, the issue of just giving her trastuzumab without chemo? Of course, we do that sometimes in metastatic disease, Hope, but what about in the adjuvant setting? For example, a patient like this who maybe is not as high a risk to skip the chemo and give her trastuzumab. You know, it's a really good question, and there's been a lot of interest in the idea that you could give hormone therapy to a patient like this with trastuzumab and therefore have less toxicity, less cardiac toxicity, no hair loss, no IV access, and potentially improve outcome. And really, the only data we have on that is the metastatic setting, where from preclinical data, it's been shown that having overexpression of or amplification of HER2 is associated with relative resistance to hormone therapy, and then in two trials in the metastatic setting, if you added trastuzumab to hormone therapy in the first-line setting, you improved response and progression-free survival. So it would be great if we could do a study and look at this question, but it's, I think, not going to ever happen, so that we really have to base it on an individual patient. In this situation, if you were going to give hormone therapy to a patient and you felt that they were at too high risk for chemotherapy, I know that myself and my colleagues have rarely used that approach, hormone therapy in a year of trastuzumab, without the data. In this particular case, it's a little more complicated, and certainly it's an area where you would have to discuss it with the patient and tell them what's known and what isn't known. So Maureen, we know that from having surveying oncologists that usually in this situation, if the tumor is more than five millimeters, what's going to happen is what happened here, is that the recommendation is going to be for chemotherapy and trastuzumab. Often, if the tumor is smaller, under five millimeters, they may not suggest chemotherapy. But regardless of the situation, when you have a patient who's going to start any of the chemotherapy regimens that are used with trastuzumab, what are some of the patient education things that you get into, and what do you tell them in terms of cardiac risk? So I think that's a great question. One thing we really is important is to evaluate their comorbidities, what medications they currently take, and that helps us guide our education process for patients depending on the chemotherapy regimen, depends on toxicity. And we do highlight, especially with the HER2-containing regimen, that the risk of left ventricular decline is a possibility. And we give them the schedule of when we're going to monitor their ejection fractions. And we actually ask them to partner with us in that, and we tell them what the results are, and we follow them. And probably the most important thing is that we educate them about the side effects of a declining ejection fraction, so shortness of breath, lower extremity swelling, unexplained weight gain or even just a very mild shortness of breath going up a flight of stairs that they would want to alert their clinical team in that partnership. Well, the patient says, what's the chance that I'm going to have a really major problem that's not going to go away? I'm going to have a serious cardiac problem, Maureen. What do you say to them? So we talk about the fact that this is a possibility, and we talk about it being a lifetime risk and that it's not just while they're getting the Herceptin regimen, but we highlight the fact that it is reversible with interventions like ACE inhibitors and diuretics. We can actually improve their ejection fraction, and we often partner with cardiologists to help us if the patient does develop these symptoms. What about the choice of chemotherapy, Sandy? You know, this is really controversial. Oncologists and investigators have been arguing about this since 2005. Most of the original studies included an anthracycline, but this one of the major studies looked at another regimen that didn't have essentially doxorubicin in it, the so-called TCH regimen. What about cardiac risk if you sort of skip the anthracycline? Well, this was really a courageous study, actually, that was done without an anthracycline. And it did show that both the TCH regimen and the AC followed by TH regimen had benefits when you compared to no trastuzumab. So both regimens were good. What do you do in your own practice, Sandy? Well, my standard is TCH because I have spent a lot of my career actually looking at cardiac toxicity and treating women with anthracyclines and seeing the cardiac effects. So I really use that as my standard choice. In fact, I'm the PI with Denny Slayman on the Beth trial, which is TCH plus or minus bevacizumab. So I very much firmly believe in that. And I think 
think and especially getting back to the case that was presented, I would totally agree with using a non-anthracycline regimen in a patient like this that's higher risk than someone without HER2 positive disease, but on the low end of the risk scale. Because you know that with the anthracycline, about 4% of women will actually have clinical congestive heart failure, and then maybe 18% or more have a drop in their ejection fraction. And it's not always reversible, actually, if you look at the data. About a third of the patients still have lowering of their ejection fraction after they've completed this. So it is, as Maureen mentioned, is a lifelong problem. So to give someone a benefit is obviously very important, but we really have to look at these cardiac risks. So I use TCH. What about the actual quality of life that people go through, Maureen, in terms of whether they get the sort of AC followed by a taxane and trastuzumab as opposed to TCH? Putting aside the cardiac issues in terms of, you know, sort of how they feel, fatigue, side effects, it looks like the audience has the perception that it's more difficult to give the anthracycline. What's your thought? Well, I think that that's what I see in my practice is that patients have a larger plethora of side effects with AC followed by Taxol, Herceptin, than TCH chemotherapy. But TCH I find difficult. Patients experience some fatigue. They really don't feel well during the majority of that six months of therapy. Nausea and vomiting is not as great with TCH as it is with AC, Taxol, Herceptin. But certainly both of them require a lot of education and support to get the patient from cycle to cycle until the end of their treatment. Susan, agree, disagree, or in between? Actually, I would agree. I think that the AC is a little bit harder for patients to get through. Just in my practice, we tend to do more of that as opposed to the carbotaxol combination. So, Hope, if you're going to use chemotrastuzumab in a patient with a small node-negative HER2-positive tumor, what kind of chemo? You know, I think we have actually some good data from the randomized adjuvant trials that helps us to understand who's at greater risk for cardiac toxicity. And I think when you're comparing these regimens, AC, paclitaxel with trastuzumab versus TCH, there is clearly more nausea with AC. But overall, what we're really looking at when we're comparing the two regimens is cardiac toxicity risk and assuming that the efficacy is relatively similar. So I think that if you divide up, you know, based on the data we have from the BCIRG trial, we don't actually know because those two arms weren't compared which is the best regimen or if those two regimens are identical for all patients. So that I think that one approach which is sort of takes the middle road is to say patients who have a higher cardiac toxicity risk we use TCH for, and patients who are younger and have higher risk disease, we use ACTH for. And, you know, that's just a a way of kind of managing what the data is at the moment. And so patients who are older, have hypertension on medications, have a slightly lower EF to start with, I use TCH routinely in those patients, whereas a younger patient or multiple positive nodes, I'm going to use an ACTH type of regimen. I have to ask Sandy, because the NSABP meeting, Sandy's the co-chair of the NSABP, was just held a few weeks ago, and they amazingly are about, and we always thought about trastuzumab, it's an antibody, you know, very targeted therapy, it's all about the HER2 receptor. Well, the NSAVP is about to launch a study looking at trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting and HER2 normal tumors. Sandy, pretty interesting and controversial as the NSABP always is. Just very briefly, what's the background to do this incredible study? Well, it's very controversial, and there are many major key opinion leaders that have stood up and said we're crazy for doing this. But it's based on Soon Paik's data when patients who were placed on the NSABP B31 trial came in, their tumor blocks came into the central lab. Soon Paik, who's the chairman of pathology, tested them. They all had to be HER2 positive by some method. And he found a couple of hundred that actually by his testing were really HER2 negative. And when the data was analyzed, even those patients that were HER2 negative by his testing benefited when there was an addition of trastuzumab. So it was based on that, and then there was a round robin. The other pathologists looked at it and corroborated the data, and the North Central data sort of supported it. So based on that, we are going forward with it. Really amazing. Of course, the NSABP is the one who many, many years ago was when it had Bernie Fisher, the legendary father of breast cancer, who showed that lumpectomy worked, I think, at a time when they were getting a lot of grief about that. 
So they've always been kind of at the cutting edge, and this is really an amazing study that's about to be launched. Susan, let's talk about your other patient. Yeah, actually, this is a lovely 48-year-old active woman who came into my diagnostic clinic in surgery. And I saw her initially, and she was complaining of a sort of a thickness and a heaviness in her breast. She said that in the fall, she was playing with her kids and sustained some trauma, thought maybe it was a bruise, so she kind of put it off a little bit. But it sort of expanded more, didn't have any skin changes, and went to see her gynecologist who ordered a mammogram and then sent her in to see me for evaluation. So on exam, she had an 8-centimeter mass in her breast, and she was clinically lymph node negative. Pretty healthy woman, no family history. Her only sort of medical issue is she was a smoker, one pack per day for over 20 years. And so when I saw her, we looked at her mammogram. I set her up. She was biopsied that same day. She got two core biopsies, confirming multicentric disease. And then we brought her through the multidisciplinary clinic for further review. She had an MRI that also demonstrated multicentric disease. She was clinically lymph node negative. We recommended a neoadjuvant chemotherapy approach. So she, and she was also ER negative and HER2 positive. That's correct. And what that's was her correct. state? I mean, she had locally advanced breast cancer, mm-hmm. eight centimeter lesion. That's a large lesion. Mm-hmm. What was her state of mind? What kind of questions was she asking? And what did you say to her in terms of what to expect? Given that she had multicentric disease up front, you know, the discussion was mastectomy was going to be the surgical plan. So she proceeded with her sentinel node, which was negative. We had many options for her for clinical trials. We had a long discussion about clinical trials. And I've had the experience, having been a practitioner for 25 years and lived with negotiating the lumpectomy trials when they first came out in Boston, helping women understand that, you know, now 30 years later, women now today benefit from the fact that women were altruistic and were allowed themselves to be randomized. And in the beginning, we didn't have that data. They sort of said, well, there was a fear about lumpectomy versus mastectomy. Now we have 30 years worth of trials that has shown the advancement in the treatment. So that's something I can actually communicate in counseling to a patient that based on clinical trials, you won't get less of a therapy, but potentially better. In her case, She declined a clinical trial because of the options that we had available for her. She was fearful of the toxicities, and in part because her husband was a truck driver, and she was home with the kids. And although she didn't work, it was important to her to be able to take care of those kids while he was away. And because of her fear of toxicity, she elected to go with a standard approach. So, Sandy, how do you think through this issue of locally advanced breast cancer? Maybe you can also comment on inflammatory breast cancer, which you've done a lot of research in. And how does it differ in a patient who has a HER2 negative tumor or, in this case, a HER2 positive tumor? Well, the exciting thing is that patients with HER2 positive disease have great pathologic CR rates. I mean, they're the highest of any of the tumors that we have, up to 50 or 60 percent, depending on which trials you look at. So that's the good news for someone with a tumor like this, with this tumor size. And I think, you know, I understand that she certainly didn't want to go on a clinical trial, but just to mention some of the questions that are being asked right now are to look at a comparison in the neoadjuvant setting of trastuzumab to lapatinib, for example, to the combination of the two. That's being looked at. I mean, there's so many trials out there right now in this situation because even though the past CR rate's 50 or 60% with trastuzumab, it's not 100%, so people are trying to improve it even more. And, of course, hope that combination of trastuzumab and antibody with the tyrosine kinase inhibitor, lapatinib, that works inside the cell, lapatinib, also going against HER2, We're starting to see some encouraging results coming out in the metastatic setting. It's being looked at in a huge clinical trial, 8,000 women in the adjuvant setting. What about the idea of this sort of combined attack on the HER2? It's a really neat idea, actually. You know, we like it when the ideas we have in the laboratory and in showing animals actually work in humans. You know, it's, I think, makes us all feel very gratified about everything we're doing. But this is actually really an amazing story because it was when lapatinib was new, so you couldn't get it. And so we all did a trial where patients who had HER2-positive metastatic disease were randomized to either go on single-agent lapatinib or lapatinib plus trastuzumab. And then if your cancer, when your cancer progressed on lapatinib, you could cross over and add trastuzumab. 
So the first data was presented on that trial. What we saw was an improvement in clinical benefits. So, you know, response being where you have to have these criteria of a certain amount of percentage of shrinkage, that wasn't much different. But clinical benefit was better. And that translated into this big difference in progression-free survival. And actually, I don't know that we've ever really seen anything like that with an antibody as opposed to hormone treatment. So then the real, I think, killer of the whole thing was that when we had a little bit longer follow-up, we were able to demonstrate a marked improvement in survival in women who got the combination of lapatinib and trastuzumab. Remember, these are women whose cancers had progressed on multiple lines of chemotherapy combined with trastuzumab before. This is an all-targeted agent combination that was pretty well tolerated. So, you know, it's amazing to me that we could see that, and I think very encouraging for the adjuvant and neoadjuvant trials, and also offers a treatment for patients in the metastatic setting now that maybe is a little bit less toxic. You know, there's a neoadjuvant trial, Sandy was mentioning in the cooperative group in the U.S., two different trials, NSABP, CLGB. There was a trial in Europe that has now closed to accrual, so we'll see those results in the near future. And then this huge 8,000-patient trial. So we're going to have, like, I think 10,000 women who've received, you know, trastuzumab, lapatinib, or the combination. And then we also have the other new monoclonal antibody, pertuzumab, and then TDM1. So there are lots of agents Well, as long as you broke those up, and they are so exciting. Can you explain? Of course, you're doing a huge trial looking at pertuzumab. What is pertuzumab? And what is particularly TDM1? Because there's really some excitement there. Well, pertuzumab is very similar to trastuzumab, but they bind to a different site of the HER2 receptor and prevent the dimerization of the two HER2 or the HER2 and HER3 and then prevent signaling. So it has been shown, and we did a study when I was at the NCI, and Jose Bazelga has done a study showing a very good response with a combination of trastuzumab and pertuzumab in the metastatic setting. So the trial is called Cleopatra, and it actually is... Trastuzumab, pertuzumab, docetaxel versus trastuzumab, docetaxel. And it's almost closed. I just heard today we need about, I think, 32 more patients, and it'll be closed to an 800-patient trial. So that is exciting. That's first-line treatment. And then TDM1 is also a monoclonal antibody. It's actually trastuzumab linked to a metanzine, which is a vinca-like drug, microtubule inhibitor, in a very low dose. And it's been shown to have spectacular responses in metastatic disease in patients who've had multiple treatments. It's about a 30% response rate, which we never see in metastatic breast cancer in someone who's had lots of treatments. It's usually 5 or 10% at the best. And the cool thing about that is it's like a Trojan horse thing. The trastuzumab, the antibody, is hooked onto the chemo. It's a tiny dose. These patients don't get hair loss and you know, chemotherapy side effects, and yet it seems to work as well as chemo and trastuzumab. They, you, they do get a little toxicity, nausea, and thrombocytopenia, really? but not, I mean, it depends on the patient, but there does appear to be a little bit of leakage of the metensine, you know, breaking that connection with the trastuzumab. But overall, it is really well tolerated. You know, they're going to the FDA with that drug, so maybe we'll all have it to be able to treat our patients next year, which would be very exciting. Neil was mentioning that earlier, the Trojan horse idea, where you have that receptor on the outside and inside of the cell. So if you use trastuzumab on the outside and then lapatinib is on the inside and the other drugs, but trastuzumab DM1 actually is a little less trastuzumab per drug, but binds to the receptor, receptor pulls it inside the cell, and you're dragging in this really nasty chemotherapy drug. You can't give it by itself because it's too toxic. And then inside the cell, the receptor releases the drug. The linker is broken so that you have the drug delivered directly to the cancer cell, and it is supposed to be delivered only to cells that have you know, a lot of HER2 on the outside of their cell so that that's where it will bind. And in fact, so far, it's shown very little cardiac toxicity, which is really encouraging. Now, this woman got paclitaxel and trastuzumab, which we had talked about earlier, first patient. And she actually, when she went to surgery, had no tumor. She had an eight-centimeter lesion that went away completely, correct? She did. She had a complete response. We were talking about combining, Maureen, lapatinib, the newer anti-HER agent, the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor with trastuzumab, a lot of patients will receive lapatinib often with capecitabine. This is a common combination. What do you say from a patient education point of view to prepare a patient who's getting that combination? 
So it's an oncology nurse patient education challenge because lopatinib is given twice a day, a uh, certain number of tablets which are carried in continuous, whereas the capsidabine is given twice a day, and depending on the schedule, one week on, one week off, or according to package insert, 14 days BID, seven days off. So it is challenging, and you know I can talk about a patient in our clinic who was recommended for the capsidabine-lapatinib combination, and she couldn't get from Penn Station to Memorial Sloan Kettering, and I was very concerned that she wasn't going to be able to follow, despite my best efforts in giving her this type of oral regimens that she was going to take home, and we were going to see her in a month. So it presented us with some opportunity. Either we would talk to the physician about the possibilities. Maybe this is not an appropriate patient. Maybe we should consider the other anti-HER2 drug, trastuzumab. But really, the other thing to do is to really look at our social resources. And we actually called in the visiting nurse service to help us give this patient the -the state-of-the-art combination with lapatinib and capsidabine. And she did relatively well on that drug. So I think we have to think out of the box on some of these complicated therapies. It's important that the patient hear it and get reinforcement. So it doesn't only happen either in the infusion chair. It can happen in the doctor's office and then happen in the infusion chair so that if the patient gets to the treatment room, I think it's important for us to really look at what we're giving patients, who the patients are, and what resources could we utilize to give them best therapy. So I'm going to close with a couple of questions from the audience. We've got a lot of really great questions. Again, we're going to answer all these as a follow-up. But one question I thought was interesting, Sandy, is... How long do you keep patients with metastatic HER2-positive disease on trastuzumab? That kind of has changed a little bit, I think, in the last few years. What do we know about that, and what do you do? Well, we've had some recent data from the German group. This has always been a big question. Should you stop it after the first treatment that you give them and just go to chemotherapy without it? And the German trial did show that if you continued the trastuzumab with capecitabine, that the patients actually did better for a longer period of time. I think what most of us do is use a HER2-targeted therapy continuously throughout the patient's lifetime. And most of the time, for me personally, I use trastuzumab. I have had difficulties, as was mentioned, with lapatinib, with the diarrhea, with the taking the pills and a lot of issues, so I haven't used that as much. And we do put a lot of our patients on clinical trials. But some kind of HER2-targeted therapy, and most often it is trastuzumab. Final question to Hope. The person wants to know, in terms of the patient who has metastatic disease that's ER-positive and HER2-positive, Do you start out with hormonal therapy? Do you start out with trastuzumab chemo? Do you use both? Well, I use both. I think it really is very much the way we approach all of our patients in all settings as we individualize the treatment based on what the patient is presenting with. So we have patients who will present with no disease or bone-only disease, and they're HER2 positive. In that situation, I use the combination because, again, my goal is to keep them on their first-line therapy for as long as possible because I think their quality of life is maintained that way although we don't know that it's a survival benefit from doing that. On the other hand, you know, for all of us, if we have a patient who comes in with pending liver failure, short of breath, or one of those types of symptoms, extensive visceral disease, we're going to treat the patient with chemotherapy and trastuzumab and then convert them over after they have responded well to a hormone therapy, trastuzumab, chemotherapy break. And in some cases, that break can last, you know, seven years. I have patients still going on. So, you know, we really always want to remember, we didn't talk about it much today, but that chemotherapy break, you know, going back to hormone therapy, we've even been using high-dose estrogen. It's a really great way of giving your patients a break and some quality of life.